Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Hey, before I get started, a, uh, a PSA. Now, if you ever watch uh, network news, television news, I don't know if anybody even does that anymore, but as you're watching the news, before the station changes to a commercial, the anchor will usually say something like, just ahead, and then he'll give some teaser. Just ahead. A substitute teacher or substitute bus driver uh, makes a wrong turn, and you're not going to believe where those kids wind up. So you sit through six commercials because you want to know where those kids wound up. As your preacher, let me tell you, just ahead, you are going to be hearing about and you're going to be challenged by our vision for 2020 here at Bay Area for the past several months the leadership here has been talking and praying and planning and dreaming and praying some more about where God is leading us here at Bay Area and what God is expecting of us here. And uh, the next couple weeks, you're going to be hearing a lot more about this. We're going to be asking for your input, but especially we're going to be asking for your prayers, your participation. An expectation of getting involved and being involved, maybe in some ways you never thought about before, as we try to figure out and, and, and try to better do what we do here better, but especially do what we do out there better than we've done before. So be thinking about that, be, be praying about that. Okay. I want to start my, my lesson this morning by telling you a joke. And again, I'm going to tell you up front, it's not a funny joke. Okay? I know this. I get a feeling like you sit back there and you think, Tim tells these jokes and he thinks they're so funny, but they're not. I know they're not funny, okay? I know this joke I'm about to tell you, it's not funny, but I'm telling it for the moral, not the punchline, okay? An anthropologist went to do some scientific research on a, a far flung tropical island. And he gets there and he hires a uh, local guide to lead him to this remote area where he's going to do his studies. And they take off on a four-day canoe trip upriver to this, this remote place. After a few days in the canoe, the, uh, the scientist hears drums in the distance. Boom, 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 boom. He turns to his guide and says, what's, what's with the drums? It doesn't sound good. The, the guide says, don't worry. Drum's good. Drums not bad. When drums stop, bad. They keep going. The drums get a little bit louder. They get a little bit faster. Boom, 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 boom. And the scientist says again to his guide, those drums, are, they're sounding worse. What, what, what's going on? Guide says, don't worry. Drums not bad. When drums stop, very bad. Just then the drums stopped. The scientist is terrified now. He says, the drums have stopped. What's next? The guide Squints his eyes, puts his head down, covers his head, and says, Guitar solo. <laughs> Don't give me that look. I warned you. <laughs> Consider this. How often do we find ourselves terrified of the unknown? How often do we find ourselves so afraid of something because we don't know what's going to happen or afraid of something that we have very little or no control over, the fear of the unknown can be terrifying. In fact, it can be paralyzing. 
I don't know how many times you have ever been paralyzed by fear. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, sitting through a scary movie or being startled by something or worried about an outcome. I'm talking about being truly terrified by fear. True story. When I was a junior in college, uh, myself and Steve Roberts had an apartment right off campus. It was just a little house. Uh, An older couple lived down below. They had an apartment that they rented out up above. And Steve and I lived together. That year, Steve had a job working for the uh, Federal Reserve Bank in Nashville, nights. He went to work about 10 o'clock at night. He worked till 6 o'clock in the morning. And then he went to class all day. Looking back, it's nuts. But at the time, we didn't think much about it. But what that meant was I was alone in that little apartment during the nights, uh, you know, weeknights. I am sleeping one night, and uh, I get woken up. And you ever get woke up, and you think you heard a noise, but you're not sure if you're dreaming or what it was. I thought I heard something. I laid in bed a while. No, it must have been the dream. Then I heard it again. Okay, that was definitely a noise. I'm wide awake now, and I hear the door shut. Okay, someone's in this apartment. I look at the clock. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Steve is at work. No one else is supposed to be in this apartment. My door is cracked a couple inches. My bedroom's at the end of the hall. I see a flashlight bouncing around in the front room. Someone is in this apartment with a flashlight. Now, my heart starts thumping. I'm, I'm getting scared. The flashlight works its way down the hall. Stops and, and looks in Steve's room. No one's in there, of course. And I'm laying in bed thinking, do I attack? Do I wait to be attacked? No, I don't know what to do here. But I was afraid. And then I hear someone whispering. Okay, there's more than one person in this apartment. And the light is coming on down the hall. It stops in front of my bedroom. It shines across. In fact, actually, the door pushes open just a little bit. I'm lying in bed. The flashlight is looking around in my room. This fight or flight uh, response, it's definitely leaning towards flight, but there's nowhere to fly. Um, So I'm moving the covers ever so slowly. I'm trying to pretend like I'm asleep, but I'm ready to jump out if I have to. I don't know what I would do if I jumped up. (laughs) But anyway, the Whoever it was turned and walked back to the end of the hall, and they're back in the front room. Now, we are two poor college kids. There is not a thing in that apartment anyone would want, let alone steal. But they don't leave. And so I'm laying there for a while thinking, i got to do something. I can't just lay here. So very quietly, I get up. I close my door. I lock the door. And I come up with a plan. It's probably not a good plan, but I think, I'm going to yell out. I'm going to let them know I'm awake, and I know someone's here. In fact, I'm going to yell out Steve's name. That way they'll think that someone else is either here or coming. So I'm leaning against the door. I pick up a baseball bat, by the way. It's in my room. I'm leaning against a locked door, and I yell, Steve! Nothing. Steve! And I hear Steve Roberts yell back, yeah, what? (laughs) I open the door. The lights are still out. There at the end of the hall holding a flashlight, Steve Roberts. I'm going, what are you doing here? He said, well, I had a paper due at my 8 o'clock class, and I got off work early to come home and type it up. Well, what's with the flashlight? Turn on some lights. I didn't want to wake you up. (laughs) 
Well, what are you doing talking to yourself? I'm not talking to myself. I was singing. Well, why are you flashing the light all around my room? I'm looking for that extension cord for the typewriter. I can't find it. And then he flips on the light, and he just starts laughing. And he said, what are you doing? Scared to death at the end of the hall in your underwear holding a baseball bat. I said, I'm coming to kill you. That's what I'm about to do. But that was my experience of hiding in a locked room, scared to death. This morning, I want to take a look at a group of people in the New Testament who find themselves hiding in a locked room, scared to death. And if you've been to church very much, you know exactly where I'm headed here. You know, last Sunday, we talked about the why of the church. We talked about the fact that so often we get so hung up on the how. And we argue and and we agonize and we prioritize the how of the church. And we completely forget about the why. And our why is to love God and to love people and to follow Jesus. Our why is to accept that, that grand invitation of Jesus to be fishers of men. Remember, if you have a why to live for, you could endure almost any how. And I was thinking about what to call this sermon. Obviously, I've landed on the discomfort zone, but I was going to entitle it just Why Part Two. Or I was going to entitle it uh, Why Not? Because I want to talk to you this morning about the one thing that I think, more than any other thing, distracts us from being focused on the why. The one thing that, that causes us to either fish sporadically or even worse, not fish at all, and that is simply fear. Just simply fear. And I say simple, but it's not simple. It's debilitating and it's paralyzing. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 20, if you're not there already. This is very, near the very end of the Gospel of John. It's near the very end of Jesus' time on earth. Jesus is newly resurrected, and his followers, his disciples, his his fishers of men are hiding in fear. Notice how he begins. I'm, I'm in verse 19 of John 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, these followers of Jesus, they've come together, they've met in a room, and they've locked the door. And the reason they have locked the door is because they are afraid of the Jews. Now, before you get too quick to judge these early Christians, remember, these guys had a pretty good reason to be afraid. They had reason to be in fear. It was really just a couple nights ago that they saw Jesus ripped out of their presence by an angry mob and taken off to a a trial. And it was really just a couple days ago they knew Jesus was crucified on a cross and he died. And really it was just a couple hours ago when the Jews were saying, we win, you lose, we are back in control, Jesus is in a borrowed tomb on the edge of town, and you followers of Jesus, we're coming for you. So yeah, they had reason to be afraid. If there was ever a time when it was dangerous to be identified as a follower of Jesus, this was the time. The political climate uh, was as hostile towards Jesus' followers as it has ever been before or since. So yeah, they had a reason to be hiding in fear in a locked room. 
What happened to Jesus could just as easily happen to them. And you know, I have a feeling that that part of their conversations in that locked room had to have been, what would Jesus do if he was here? I wish he was, he's not, but you know, we don't know what to do. What would Jesus say to us if he were here right now? And we're not the first generation to come up with WWJD, right? Boy, I wish I knew what Jesus would do. The door's locked so that no one can get into the room, but someone does get into the room. Look what else verse 19 says. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus enters a locked room, stands among them. Okay, that got their attention. And now this whole conversation about, I wonder what Jesus would tell us to do. I wonder what Jesus would say. It's not just some academic exercise now because Jesus is here. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? What's he going to tell them? And you sort of expect Jesus to be incredibly disappointed. You kind of expect Jesus to say to these people, what are you doing? Why are you hiding in a locked room? Come on. Why are you cowering in fear? What's the matter with you people? I'm going to have to you know, give up and start over with another group. But that's what's so great about this passage. Jesus enters a room, a room filled with fear. People who are genuinely and honestly and legitimately afraid. And he's not condemning. And he's not judgmental. And as I read the text, he doesn't really appear to be disappointed. Instead, Jesus interacts with them with grace and truth and a tremendous amount, I think, of compassion. He reminds them of two things. Two answers, really, to the question of why should we be fishers of men? First, because the gospel is so good. Because the good news is such good news. Second, because the whole broken world outside that door that doesn't know this story, that doesn't know about me. Notice how Jesus reminds them of these things in the next couple of verses. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The very first thing that Jesus does is to speak peace over these people who are so afraid. He knows they're afraid. He knows why they're afraid. And he says and does just what they need the most in that moment. And then after he speaks peace into the room, he shows them his wounds, shows them his hands, his side. Interesting sequence of events here. I mean, you can imagine the uh, emotions going on in this room. Fear, excitement, chaos, confusion, joy. They're not sure how to react. Jesus shows up. They were expecting maybe someone to show up. They weren't expecting Jesus to show up. He gives them peace, and he shows them his wounds. And, And these disciples of Jesus now begin to understand that not just the crucifixion was real. They knew the crucifixion was real. They knew Jesus died. And I believe that they understood he died for them. 
But now they're, they're finally understanding not just the crucifixion was real, the resurrection's real also. He's here. He's alive. He's defeated death. Jesus enters this room. He says, peace to you. And then he says, now look at me. Look at me. Don't look at your fear. Look at me. Look at where I am. I'm standing here. Look at the victory that we've claimed. And then John says this. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I guess they were. They were overjoyed. Their emotions have gone from uh, fear and confusion and, and the unknown to Jesus is here and everything's okay. I wish I could learn that lesson. I wish I could learn in the middle of my most fearful moments to look, instead of my fear, to look to Jesus, to be more Jesus-centered and more Christ-centered and more cross-centered. I wish I could remember just how good the gospel really is. Let me get a little bit nerdy here for just a minute. I want to share some statistics with you. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of groups around that do a ton of research on church growth and church trends and everything to do with church. And a recent survey asked people who identify as Christians, do you feel that it's increasingly offensive to others for you to initiate conversations of faith? In other words, do you feel like you offend people when you talk about Jesus? Interesting. Out of the baby boomers, those people born between 1946 and 1964, basically people my age, a little bit older, 32% of Christian baby boomers said, yes, I feel like it's offensive to others when I initiate a conversation about faith. Generation X, those of you born between 1965 and 1985, almost half, 48% of Gen Xers said, yeah, I think I'm offending people when I talk about Jesus. And then millennials, those of you born between 81 and 96, 61% think that when I talk about Jesus, I'm offending people. Now, you don't have to be a statistician to notice a trend that's going on here. It is perceived as increasingly offensive for us Christians to talk about Jesus. That's the perception of Christians. Now, I don't know if that exactly matches up with reality, but I don't have to tell you, people's perception is their reality. And if my perception is, I'm offending you if I talk about Jesus, that's going to affect how much and how often and to what extent I talk about Jesus. You know, it used to be, I'm kind of hesitant to talk about Jesus because I don't want anyone to think I'm weird. I don't want anybody to think I'm some holy roller. But now it's actually shifted to, I'm hesitant to talk about Jesus because I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to be seen as politically incorrect. I don't want to tr be seen as someone who draws you know, some hard and fast lines. Uh, I don't want to be exclusive in any way. I don't really want to draw a line between Jesus and Buddha or Jesus and Muhammad or you know, any other uh, belief system. Listen, I don't want to offend anyone either. 
But there's a difference between Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and any other wannabe Messiah. None of those other men have ever walked into a room full of people after they had been killed and showed them the wounds that killed them. Only Jesus has defeated death. Okay, let's go back to the locked room. Jesus is in this room of believers. They're scared. They're happy, joyful. They're confused. They're not sure what to think. They're not sure what to feel. And he says, look at me. Check me out. Check my scars. Listen, we win. Okay? I've won. And because I've won, we win. And because I'm here, everything that I said would happen has happened. And everything I promised that will happen will happen. And then we read in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. You know, there are times when you really can't hear that often enough. (laughs) Peace be with you. And then he tells them something really significant. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The Father had so much love for this broken, this hurting world that he sent Jesus into this hurting world knowing that he would be hurt in the process. And he tells these people in this room, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus says, look at that door. First he says, look at me. Okay, look at me. Look at my scars. Look at my wounds. And then he says, look at the door. Look at that locked door. I want you to unlock the door. I want you to open the door. I want you to go out of the door. I am sending you. Because there's people outside your locked doors that don't know this story yet. They haven't seen what you have seen. They don't realize what you now realize. They don't believe what you now believe. They don't know the good news, the victory. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And that's where we come into the story. That's where we enter this story. We, too, are sent. Jesus is very clear about his expectations for his followers when it comes to being fishers of men. Matthew ends his gospel this way. We are really familiar with it. We've got a name for it. We call it the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Actually, I don't have... Yeah, I do have it on the board. I'm with you to the very end of the age. I'm still here. You know, when I first heard that verse as a little kid sitting in the pew, I remember thinking, that is great. That is so wonderful. That is so awesome that God would give a verse just for the missionaries. That is so thoughtful of Jesus. Right before he goes back to heaven that he actually has time to stop and think about that handful of people that are someday going to go to Africa or China or India, you know, the other side of the world. That's just great, you know, that he said that just to the missionaries. But, of course, you don't have to hang out in the Gospels very long to know how focused Jesus is on this whole go and sent. The Gospel of Mark ends this way. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. 
but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke ends his gospel this way. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then towards the end of John's gospel, we read about these Jesus followers hiding in a locked room, Jesus entering this locked room and presenting himself to them in a miraculous way. And Jesus says, look at me. Look at them. Let's go. It's really the message here in the locked room. Look at me. Look at them. Let's go. Outside your locked doors, there are all these people who don't know about a risen Savior. Look at me. Look at them. Let's go. That was Jesus' message to these fearful Christians inside their locked room. I think that's still Jesus' message to us fearful Christians inside our locked rooms as well. Look at me. Look at them. Let's go. You know, when we're tempted to be quiet, when we're tempted to just isolate ourselves from culture, when we're tempted just to stay in our comfort zone, may we instead choose a path of love and grace and compassion Maybe we'd be better focused on the why of following Jesus. To be disciples who make disciples. Jesus' message remains, look at me. I'm right here. Look at me. When you get nervous, look at me. I'm right here. When you get afraid, look at me. I'm right here. When you're not sure what you're going to do, what you're going to say, look at me. I'm right here. I'm with you. Look at me. Get out of your comfort zone. I'm speaking peace to your fear. His message remains, look at them. Look at those people out there that that you know that don't know me. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Look at all those people outside your locked door who are condemned. Just because you haven't told them the good news. I think his message remains, let's go. Into all the world, let's go. To every nation, let's go. Across the street, let's go. To people that you work with, you go to school with, people in your family, let's go. We have not been given a spirit of timidity. We've been given a spirit of power and love. We have been sent. By Jesus himself, we have been sent. Let's be disciples who are in the process of making disciples. Listen, as a church family, if there's anything we can do for you and with you today, something you want us to be praying about with you or for you, uh, we'd love to do that, uh, minister to you in any way that we can. Uh, There'll be some people at the front of the auditorium. You're welcome to meet us there. Let's be standing and singing.